Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in a, uh, a very nice, sort of exciting, uh, uplifting part of the calendar right now, where uh, there's a big energy shift. <clears throat> We've gone from Tisha B'Av and the, the sadness, the mourning that takes place over <clears throat> all the national tragedies and all the the current sadness that exists in the world. And, and now, um, tonight actually, is Tuba'av, which the Talmud calls one of the happiest days of the entire year. In fact, one of the two happiest days of the entire year, um, Tuba'av and, and Yom Kippur. A lot of people associate Yom Kippur with sadness <clears throat> because we're, we're fasting and we're sort of trying to um, correct all the things that we've done wrong but the real headline of Yom Kippur is that God is forgiving us everything. So that's, that's why it's such a happy day. And, um, and so Tuba'av, tonight, which means Tu is a, um, a, a, a gematria. Uh, tu is spelled uh, Tezvav, which is 9 plus 6, which is 15. The reason why they do it that way, so it means the 15th, Tuba'av means the 15th of Av. Just like Tu Bishvat, that holiday, Two means the 15th, the 15th of the month of Shvat. And just as an aside, just so you see the incredible reverence that, that Jewish people have in terms of dealing with the name of God, there's an easier way to, to um, communicate the number 15 than 9 plus 6. Of course, it's 10 plus 5. But to say 10 plus 5 in letter form would be using Yud and He, which is one of the names of God. And so, because we don't want to be so casual um, with our dealing with the divine, so we say nine plus six instead. And, you know, that's just a, a little tiny detail, but you see in these little details how much reverence is, is sort of um, poured out in, in terms of anything, in terms of our relationship with, with, with Hashem. So anyway, tonight is the 15th of Av, the full moon of Av, and many, many great things happened uh, on this day, historically, the, the, probably the greatest one um, hasn't happened yet. So the, the greatest thing that ever happened today hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and I will, I will explain what that means. It's actually a very amazing, beautiful uh, concept, and you'll see a, a very, very cool way of understanding the calendar in a moment. Um, but anyway... Um, historically speaking, um, perhaps the greatest thing that happened on, on, on uh, Tuba Av, the 15th of Av, is that the 40-year decree of dying in the desert ended. Or perhaps um, more, uh, more precisely, the Jews realized that it ended. And so, um, so, in other words, now it's like the gates are open to go into Israel. At this point, the decree of exile is finished, and now we can go in. So that's, that's, an, amazing, that's an amazing thing. And of course, there were other great things that happened, but I want to, uh, I focused on that before, I want to um, go on to some other ideas right now. The, the main thing that I, I want to suggest here, though, is this wonderful, um, almost hairpin turning on a dime shift that's taking place from Tisha B'av to Tuba'av, from sadness to happiness. And that's just so emblematic 
of the Jewish view of life that basically the world is being created every single moment, being created and recreated every single moment. And as we've said many times, the very first word of the Torah, Breshis, I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that it's not to be translated um, as in the beginning. Breshit, of course, is the first word of the entire Torah. It's not in the beginning, but with beginnings. With beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning to say, out of the fabric of beginnings, that the entire world is literally made out of beginnings, and that any moment, anything can go in any direction. And so with that in mind, you can see a beautiful illustration of it going from Tisha B'Av, which is really the, the, the bottom, to, to Tuba'av. Or if you want to go maybe a little bit deeper, we know that Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, is going to be the happiest day of the year. It's going to be one of the greatest days of the year. And of course our tradition is that Mashiach, the great Redeemer, is born on uh, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. And so when seen from that perspective, we're not going from the bottom to the top, we're going basically just from the top to the top. And, and so, so that gives us a greater appreciation of the idea that, that the Talmud says something which is um, very hard for us to, to enact. In fact, well, let me rephrase that. You, you see the incredible sensitivity that the Chachamim, the sages of the Talmud have about human nature. And again, just as an aside, I want to say that <clears throat> in terms of my own spiritual development, everyone, um, everyone tends to think of themselves as the exception to the rule. And when they hear uh, certain teachings, they'll say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Because everyone wants to excuse themselves from any, anything and everything, really and just be their own independent player. <clears throat> but what I realized was that the sages know me better than I know myself. And so when they put out certain columns, certain foundations about human behavior, I realized that they really are true. And, and, and a lot of times it's my own uh, bias and lack of perspective about my own uh, inclinations, weaknesses perhaps, that, 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 that stopped me from, from accepting it readily. But when I realized that they know me better than I know me, then, then I was able to make more progress in terms of coming closer, I think. Um, I mentioned that. <clears throat> yeah. I mentioned that uh, because... The sages say something very deep and beautiful about receiving good news and bad news. <clears throat> and they say, <clears throat> excuse me, they say that one, ideally, since everything that emanates from God is for the good, one should receive all news as good news. And really, that, that we have this um, blessing that we're supposed to say over good news. Hatov umetiv, God who is good and who does good. And that we should say that over absolutely everything in our lives, even bad things. And the sages counter and they say, 
is it humanly possible to make a, a blessing of good news over a tragic occurrence in one's life? And they say, you know what, you're right. So they instituted another blessing, which is Baruch Dayan HaEmes, which is, thank you, Baruch um, which is a blessing over bad news. Blessed is God, the true judge. Meaning to say that whatever God does is, is, is rooted in truth and, and I accept it and I defer to the will of God. But, but here you see in this debate something very, very beautiful. You see that really everything that emanates from God is good. But at the same time, you see an incredible sensitivity about human nature and, and, and the limitations of that, that our own flesh and blood, our own limitedness, our own humanity puts on ourselves, that we're not able to actually be in touch with the goodness of, of everything that's happening all of the time. And that as such, until humanity and the world evolves into the next stage that we're inevitably heading toward, that, they're, that we're inexorably heading toward, the, the, the great Zmana Tikkun, the great time of redemption and the fixing and the perfecting of the entire world, until we reach that state where we see that everything is good, then, then we're allowed to make this blessing on quote-unquote badness. The reason why I'm bringing all of this up right now is that you see this dynamic at play between Tisha B'Av and Tuba B'Av, as I was saying, going from the saddest day to the happiest day, that right now Tisha B'Av is mourned because it is the headquarter of sadness in the calendar. So it looks like we're rapidly going from, from a sad day to a happy day. But when you realize that Tisha B'Av is going to reveal its true essence and become this incredibly happy day, you see in that dynamic that even something that we perceive as bad is actually going to be revealed as something that's very good and will be given the eyes to see not only its goodness, but in retrospect its goodness. Then you see that we're going from Tisha B'Av to Tuba B'Av. It's not a sudden reversal, but it's just going from happiness to happiness, which will be our perception in the end of days. So hopefully the... Hopefully that's clear, and you see it as, in, as a case in point, a case study of how we'll be able to have the eyes to see the inner goodness of everything, because the inner goodness of everything will become openly revealed. But we're not quite at that stage yet. God willing, God willing right now. <laughs> willing very soon. Okay. So, I want to tell you one of my favorite teachings um, from Reb Leibola Eger, he was the grandson of Rabbi Akiva Eger. And um, it, it, that, it, there's an amazing life story in, in Rabbi uh, Akiva Eger and Rabbi Leibola Eger. Um, because this was at a period in Jewish history where the Hasidic movement was still coming into wide acceptance. And it had been viewed um, with suspicion from, the, from what we call the, the, the Litvish world because they, they seemed to be well, it was unclear in their eyes what the Hasidim were trying to accomplish and whether they were forming a new religion or not. And, and it took a while for them to win over the trust of the established Torah community that in fact that they were 100% Torah Jews, but they were just sort of emphasizing different aspects of the Torah. 
but that they weren't really innovating anything. And, um, and so, so, so this particular family, the Eger family, which was a family of great Torah geniuses, Rabbi Kiva Eger, his son Rabbi Shlomo Eger, were our classic commentators whose, whose writings are, uh, uh, you know, are cherished and are included in, in all of the great uh, uh, compilations of, of Torah. So, so they had a, the grandson in that, that, that great chain of rabbis was Rabbi Leibel Eger. And he decided to become a chassid, which was a very radical move for that family. And, um, and he was uh, excommunicated from the family. And it was really kind of a, kind of a tragic event. And the, the, the story that I heard from Rabbi Weinberger was that the, the, the reconciliation of the family um, in terms of them coming back together took place with this event. See, the Agers the were not only toward geniuses, but they were also very wealthy. And when, when Rabbi... Uh, uh, Label Eger, the grandson, decided to become a chassid. He went with the Kutzker chassidim, by the way. So he became a Kutzker chassid. And then he became um, very, very close with the Ishbitzer Rebbe and became like best friends with Reb Tzadik HaKoyin. And so these are all amazing names if you know who these people are. And so to see him in that company is just so amazing and beautiful, you know. But anyway... I heard from Rabbi Wine that it was stipulated in the marriage contract that Rabbi Label Eger signed that he would never attend a Hasidic shul. So in other words, in other words, the it was two families that were coming together who were not just two families, but two families who were definitely not Hasidic. That was like that was part of the match was not only are they marrying each other. But neither of them are Hasidim, and they're not going to become Hasidim. Okay, that was a, an, an assurance that was actually built into the ketubah. So when when he went off and he became a Hasid, this was sort of a violation of of this contract. Now his his wife stood by him, but the father cut off the financing for him, and so they lived in poverty. Even though he was a very rich person, they lived in poverty, and he didn't have any. He didn't have any income really, you know, or very little. And so that was, that was very, very difficult. And so, so someone in his community, recognizing his great genius and his great holiness, wanted to give him a job. And so what he said was, um, he said, listen, I'm in real estate, and what I can do is, I, I can offer you this job, because sometimes it happens that, um, you see, there's a, there's a prohibition, it's called Yichud. Yichud means when a man and a woman who aren't married are uh, alone together in a room. And so really there are all sorts of um, you know, uh, guidelines trying to prevent such a thing in Torah law. W- one thing is that if a man and a woman have to be alone in a room, that they leave the door open. That's one thing. Another is that it's known that someone else has a key so that anyone could really appear theoretically at any point. That would be uh, another idea. Um, 
And interestingly, a lot of people think that when, um, when you have the marriage ceremony, like at the end of the chuppah, at the, when, when you break the glass traditionally, that's usually the end of the ceremony, although that's a custom, that's not part of Jewish law, but that usually marks the end of the, the chuppah section of the, of, the, of the wedding. Most people think that when the chuppah is over, that that's the, that's the end of the wedding, everyone's married. But the truth is, is that there's at least one one opinion in law, I believe this is the Rambam, that it's not until the couple is secluded together in the Yichud room, which is a room where the, 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 the chassan and kala, the bride and groom, are, are alone, um, that, uh, that the marriage is official. And now listen to this idea. Why does that, why does that constitute the, the full um, marriage of the two people? because they are alone, permissibly, in public view. Because everybody knows that it's just the two of them, together, alone, with the door closed, and that that's totally sanctified and legitimate and fantastic. And that's when the full marriage actually kicks in. So, so in order to... Um, so this realtor this, this said, listen... Uh, Sometimes, because I'm going from a state to a state, um, it happens to be that sometimes there's an issue of yichud that arises. There's someone in the house that I'm visiting, and maybe it's a woman, and so I'm alone together with this woman. If you will accompany me, and you can learn all the time, so this is a great job for you. All you have to do is just come with me, and you can sit and learn the entire time. And this, will, this way I'll know I'll never be in a situation of yichud. So, Rebbe Leib took the job, and it happened that at one moment, the, 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 the man who he was working for uh, left the room, and a woman entered the room. And now Rebbe Leib found himself in this situation of yichud, and what did he do? He realized that, like, at that moment, he's violating Torah law. He stood up, and he saw an open window, and he jumped out the window. <laughs> and he broke badly both of his legs. And while he was recovering in bed with two badly broken legs, his father realized that he was such a Yira Shemayim, that he was such a holy person, that he restored that, that financial relationship. And so that was the, that was the, 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 the repairing of this, this, uh, this, this break that had happened. And of course, Rabbi Eger was totally beloved, and um, you know, he, he wrote a Svarim, the, one of the collections is called uh, 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 Torah, Torah Emes. That's that's one collection, and um, as far as I know, bless you. As far as I know, it hasn't been translated into English, but very deep, incredible um, Torahs. Anyway, so um, now that you know a tiny bit about him, I'm going to tell you uh, a teaching of his, a very beautiful teaching, which is that um, he wants to talk about this transition from from Tishabav from the ninth of Av to um, Parshas Vies Chanan, 
Because every year, just the way the calendar is fixed, every year, the Torah portion that we read after Tisha B'Av is V'yaz Chanan. And I'm going to talk about that some more in a moment. But V'yaz Chanan has some amazing highlights in it. The one that I want to focus in on right now, which Reb Leibla Eger is mentioning, is the fact that we read the Ten Commandments again. So the Aseros Adibros, right, the, the, the tablets, the Luchos, are really um, talked about two times in the Torah. One in, is in Parshas Yisro, and we read that on Shavuos, Parshas Yisro. That's after the, the, the chapters, the Parshas of, of leaving Egypt, we get to Mount Sinai, Parshas Yisro, right? But the Ten Commandments are repeated again, and they're repeated in Parshas V'yes And there are minor variations in the wording, and we learn all sorts of amazing halachas and different things by the slightly different wording in each. Okay. So, so here's what Reb Leibla Eger says. He says that, um, that after the sin of the golden calf, the Chete Egel, the Jewish people had a crisis because Moshe smashed the tablets. And on those tablets, the very first commandment, it says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. And the Jewish people were afraid. Maybe God is not our God anymore. Because it says, I am God, your God. And, and that statement was part of the tablets which were smashed. Maybe after worshipping the golden calf. I mean, we didn't really think it was a God, but, you know, anyway. On some level, it was a big mistake. Maybe, maybe God, so to speak, is divorcing us. And so Reb Leibel Eger says very deeply and very, very beautifully, he says, after, after, after Tisha B'Av, after Tisha B'Av, well, let me finish the thought, that after the sin of the golden calf, God forgives us and he gives us the second tablets. And on the second tablets it says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God. It says the exact same thing as it said on the first Luchos. And so we realize that even after the sin of the golden calf, God is still our God. Because it said again, I am God your God. Right? So what Reb Leibla Eger says is that after Tisha B'av, we might think all the suffering, all the tragedies that we've gone through, that maybe God is not our God anymore. And so that's why the very first Shabbos after Tisha B'av, God gives us the Ten Commandments again with the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God. To show us that no matter what has happened historically throughout history, don't think for a moment that God has abandoned us, don't think for a moment that God has stopped being our God. And of course, all of us in our own personal lives, with all of our trials and tribulations and sufferings and confrontations and all sorts of challenges, we can ask ourselves the same question. Our own personal Tisha B'avs. We say, is God still our God? Has God abandoned us? And so immediately, God gives us the second luchos and says, I am God your God. Don't think. Don't, there's no contradiction. There's no contradiction. I haven't left you. I haven't left you. I'm still your God. I'm still with you. 10,000%. That's Rebbe Leibel And so, 
With this in mind, I had a thought that, that I want to share with you. Kind of building on this idea. So, so Parshas Vieschanan also has another name, maybe a more famous name. It's, it's known as uh, Shabbos Nachamu, which is the Shabbos of Consolation. And it, it gets its name from the Haftorah, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. God says, you know, I'm going to give you double, because you've suffered twice as much as any nation, I'm going to give you double consolation. Nachamu means to console. And in fact, one of the, the Gemara says one of the names of Mashiach is Menachem. Because Menachem means to console. So, so Shabbos Nachamu is this, again, this, it's all kind of together with Tuba'ab, with his happiness, with his healing after Tishabav, with, with, with God sort of hugging us and reassuring us. And so with that in mind, the Parsha begins with this word, Vieschanan. And the rabbis point out that, well, just to tell you the, the, the context, Vieschanan means to pray. And it's referring to the fact that Moshe is praying to get into the land of Israel. And the rabbis point out that the gematria, the numerical equivalent of Vieschanan, is 515, 515. And that Moshe prayed 515 times to be led into the land of Israel. And interestingly, Vieschanan is also the gematria of tefillah and shira, song also, and prayer. So you really have something amazing there. So, and the Vilna Gon says he, he prayed 515 different prayers. So... So you could ask yourself the following question. Here we have this amazing reversal of energy, and it's Tubav, and it's, 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 it's Shabbos Nachamu. So positive. And the Parsha that we're reading every year at this happy time is beginning with 515 prayers, and God says No. Seems to be a very strong contradiction, if you will. What, what is being communicated here? And so there are many, many deep things said on this. I just want to share my thought quickly, and then I'll tell you something much deeper, really. Which is, which is the rabbis teach something quite amazing which is it's true that 515 prayers God said no to. But God said to Moshe Rabbeinu the following, if you pray one more time, I'm going to let you in. But know that if you utter that prayer, it's not going to be to the ultimate benefit of the Jewish people. Because you're going to go in and destiny is going to go a different way and it's not going to be for the full complete benefit. Because basically it's going to speed the redemption in a way that it's going to be happen in a more destructive way. And so Moshe Rabbeinu, our holy teacher Moses, Moses said that, you know what, if this is going to be good for me, but not good for everyone, then forget it. Then I don't want it. 
And so Moshe doesn't daven that 516th prayer, which would have been accepted or would have been answered positively and he would have gone in. Now, I'll tell you what that says to me. It says, it says I, I think that you can learn many, many things from that. One is that God counts every single one of our prayers and that God hears every single one of our prayers. You know, sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray and we think, okay, look, it's, it's not being heard. Not only is it being heard, it's being counted. That, that in itself is, I think, quite amazing and beautiful. Not only that, but you know something? We're, so we're talking about where is the reassurance? I think that when our prayers are being answered, and I think that all of us at least have been at a point at some point in our life, there's been some period in our life where we felt as though our prayers were being answered. And, you know, you don't need reassurance at that period in your life. You need reassurance at the time when you feel as though your prayers aren't being answered. And to be told that not only are your prayers being heard, but your prayers are being counted, and not only that, but if you pray one more time, that that could be the difference from a no to a yes. But here's the reassurance that God is saying, but it wasn't going to be for the ultimate benefit of everyone. And so that to me is the greatest reassurance, that God not only is hearing our prayers, God is not only counting our prayers, but God is also protecting us from things that might ultimately not be to our benefit at that period in our lives. And so that not only is God there, but that God is listening, God is counting, and God is actively guarding and protecting us. Even at that moment, when we think that God isn't hearing at all. And I think after Tisha B'Av, that's something that we really need to hear. And you know something? I learned something else from that. Which is, the difference between praying for something 515 times and 516 times might make no difference to any of us. <laughs> In fact, if I made the world, I wouldn't make any distinction between 515 and 516, believe me. But one of the things that we read in the Mincha Haftorah of Tisha B'av, and of all fast days, by the way, is that God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And sometimes we humanize God in a way that's very detrimental to us. God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. So you know what? I wouldn't make any difference between 515 and 516, but God did. And so, to me, again, it's a, it's a big chizuk, it's a big strengthening, because you might think that at a certain point, the, 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 the prayers, like, how many times do I have to pray? But, but there is a threshold. There is a threshold. A threshold exists. 
So, and it's, it's important to say also, just because, because it's, it's just a distinction. You know, I think that the, the, the worst thing is to feel ignored. The, first, the worst thing is to feel as though you don't count. And by the way, just interpersonally, if someone asks you a question, answer the question. You know, one of the, sometimes people get into relationships with each other, especially if you live with someone, that someone will ask you something and you, you don't even answer it. Like a, a parent or a child or whatever it is, it's sort of like, and you're supposed to somehow, they're supposed to somehow know that you're, you're too busy at that moment. to Anyone who asks you a question, answer the question. It, it's, it's decency. It's just decency. Even if it just seems trivial. Even if it seems like a rhetorical question. To feel ignored is, 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 a, is a horrible, horrible sort of um, violation of a person's dignity. And when we pray to God and we don't get the answer that we want, so often we feel ignored, which is horrible. But you know something? God hears every single prayer, and often the answer is no. You are being answered. Don't think you're being ignored. The answer is no, or better, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But I, I, I think that it's very important in terms of, you know, sometimes I refer to these classes as couples therapy between us and God. And it's very, very important that you understand that, that if your prayer isn't answered, that, that you are being hurt. It's just not yet for now, or perhaps now, but no in a way that's guarding and protecting you. Okay, now I want to tell you something deeper. I heard this from Sharia Witt, who heard it from, or read it from Reb Shlomo, who is explaining the Ishvitzer Rebbe, the Mea Shalach. And he says something very amazing. He says that these prayers of Moshe Rabbeinu, which seem to be, God seems to be saying no, right? Or we explained it, and, and certainly one level he's saying no. So, so listen to this thought. When, why, so why? What's the idea? So when someone says no, when, when, someone, when God answers a prayer, rather, when God answers a prayer, there's closure. Meaning to say, right, you want something, then you get it onto something else now, right? That issue has been resolved. There's closure. So the imagery that the Ishpitzer uses is that, is that the, a gate is opened when one prays. Okay? And then, when the prayer is answered, the gate is closed. In other words, there's closure on that issue. But it could be that when this gate is open, that God wants to bring in other things through that gate. So he wants it to remain open. In other words, that there's generations of Jews 
You see, the idea being that had Moshe gone into Israel, he would have built the base of Migdash, the redemption would have come, but that there were generations of Jews that still needed to be born. And those Jews would not have been able to come into the world yet because basically history would be over. This is how he communicated it. And so that issue, Moshe's prayer to go in, couldn't be answered because it impacted very significantly on the destiny of the world. And to bring closure, closure to that issue would have been to disturb a larger issue of destiny that the world needed to go on. Now, that is very interesting to me for a number of, of, of reasons. Because a lot of times in terms of whether one's personal prayer is answered or not, just seems to me like, you know, it's just very easy to understand it within your own personal life. Like, God is either answering my prayer or he's not answering my prayer, and this is based on my merits or my lack of merits or my past life or my future or whatever it is. And it's all about me, 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 right? But what's fascinating about this approach to me is that it's linking the individual to the entire world and to the destiny of the entire world and to show how every single thing is weaved together in the most intricate, amazing way. And so by one's gate remaining open, while one is not experiencing closure in terms of their own particular issue, that lack of closure on that particular point is bringing down all sorts of other things into the world in terms of the divine guidance of the world. A very interesting thing, linking the individual to, to all of history and all of, all of society and to the future as well. Very amazing way of understanding this. And now I want to tell you what I had I told you in the beginning that that Tuba'av tonight, which is again one of the two happiest days of the entire year alongside Yom Kippur, and of course Yom Kippur being so happy because God is forgiving us and bring us so close. So so Tuba'av is celebrating one of the like an amazing thing that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so we're, what are, we're, we're, we're celebrating things that have happened, but we're also celebrating things that haven't happened. One thing in particular. So I'm going to, just with that bit of suspense, I will, uh, I will now tell you one of the coolest teachings that I know. Now, this comes from the tour. The Tor is one of the greatest uh, Torah commentators. The Tor was the son of the Rush. The Rush was the first person to put together a Shulchan Aruch. You know, we, we look to uh, Rav Yosef Karo as the author of the Shulchan Aruch, and, and appropriately so, because he authored the Shulchan Aruch. That's the code of Jewish law. It's an amazing, amazing achievement. But before the before the the Mechaber, Rav Yosef Karo, put together Shulchan Aruch, he based it on the work of the Tur. 
Okay? So the, the, the Torah was amazing. And, and that's also, the, the Torah is also the Balaturim, who I quote quite a, a bit. He's, he, he's the Gematria authority, right? From, he's a Rishon. This is from approximately the 11, 1200s, okay? And Art Scroll, by the way, has an edition of the Chumash, five volumes, with the commentary of the Balaturim in English. Fascinating. If you're interested in Gematria at all, it's a, it's a must to have. Um, the Bala Turim on the Torah. So this is the Torah, okay? And he, he, he points out something very amazing about the, the calendar, the Jewish calendar. Because we know we're always studying the times and, um, and the rhythms of the calendar and the different flows of energy that come in and out and the different opportunities for fixing and the different holidays. All of these things are all part of the calendar. The Jewish calendar is... Very, very holy, extremely holy. It's an amazing blueprint of the inner dimensions of reality. And of course, the very first mitzvah the Jewish people got when they left Egypt was to make a calendar. They're the very first mitzvah. And in fact, on, on the word breishis, in the first word of the Torah, Rashi brings the question, why, don't, why doesn't the Torah begin with the first Commandment, the nation of Israel was given, which is to make a calendar. So you see the preeminence of the calendar from God's point of view. A, that it was the first thing that we were commanded to make when we left Egypt. And B, that there's a huge question that Rashi brings on the first word of the entire Torah. Why doesn't the entire Torah begin with making the calendar? All right, so it's big. It's big, big, big. So, so now listen to this. The very first month of the year is Nisan. Okay? And that's the, that's the month that we celebrate Pesach, right? So Passover, leaving Egypt, that's in the first month of the year. That's, that's in Nisan. Now, we're always talking about microcosms here. How you can see very large things in very small things, right? It's like... There's so much DNA all over the Torah. Everything is like a microcosm for something else. And you see microcosms within microcosms within microcosms. It's all, it's all amazing. It's all amazing. So here's an example, another illustration of this, where the days of Pesach, remember, there are three primary holidays in the Jewish calendar where the Jewish people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Holy Temple, and bring special offerings, Okay known as the Shlosh Regalim. And that's Pesach, Passover, Shavuos, which is the giving of the Torah, right? And then Sukkot, okay? So the, the point being that of these three major Torah holidays, the very first one is Pesach. So you've got Pesach, the very first of the great holidays, in the very first month, all right? Now look at what the, how the Torah explains the calendar works Till this day, okay? How Pesach is a microcosm for all of the holidays of the year. You ready for this? And you can go home and you can look on a calendar and you can check for yourself and see that this is true every year. Every year, amazingly, okay? So, so you know, um, the first day of Pesach, whatever, whatever day of the week that falls out on, Let's say it falls out on a Friday night, 
right? So, so, so the first day of Pesach, if it's Friday night, that's going to be the first day of Tisha B'Av. That's going to be the night of the week that Tisha B'Av falls on. Friday also. All right? And, and that makes sense because, you know, Tisha B'Av and Pesach are sort of like opposites. You know, Pesach, we're leaving Egypt. Tisha B'Av, it's, right, another helping of exile. And, and so they're kind of opposites. Now, what's fascinating, and you'll see this, this is another dimension of this, is that it goes according to the rules of Atbash. Now, Atbash is a system that we've studied together many times. I've given a few talks on Atbash. But just to review it very quickly, if you take the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and you put the first 11 letters in a row and then put the second 11 letters underneath, so you've got two stacks of 11 letters, okay? And you sort of arrange it like a U, if you will, so that, so that it correlates, so that under the Aleph, the first letter, you've positioned the last letter of the alphabet. You put the, word, the letter Taf. And then the second letter of the alphabet would be Bez, and under that would be Shin, the second to last letter. And you can exchange these letters. You can, you can, when you see in a word the letter Aleph, you can put in the letter Taf. And that's a system of exchange. And then you can do new gamatres, new mathematical additions of certain words with, with this formulation. And it opens up all sorts of infinite gates in understanding Torah. Okay? So, so now you see it in the calendar, says the Torah. Aleph Pesach. Aleph is the first day of Pesach. Aleph Pesach correlates with what day of the, what day of the year? Tisha B'av. So Aleph, what does Tisha B'av start with? Taf. Aleph and Taf. The second day of Pesach, whatever day of the week that falls out on, Bez Pesach, the second day of Pesach, that's always going to be Shavuos. Bez Shin. The third day of Pesach, whatever day of the week the third day of Pesach falls out on, that would be Gimel, that correlates with Resh, the third to last letter. Rosh Hashanah. Whatever day the third day of Pesach falls out on, that's going to be the night that Rosh Hashanah falls out on. Now, the fourth day, the fourth day is um, going to be Simcha's Torah. I'll explain to you how that works in Atbash in a moment. The fifth day of Pesach is Yom Kippur. The sixth day of Pesach is Purim. And then the seventh day of Pesach, there's no holiday. That correlates with it. All right? So, so, so Rabbi Wolfson says something very amazing. That, that the seventh day the seventh day correlates with Tuba Av. And we're celebrating, you see, there's, a, there's an open space. The tour brings us that, that there's an open space in the calendar for one more holiday that hasn't taken place yet. An amazing, amazing idea that, that there it is. It's just, it's just waiting for another holiday. And what that holiday is, 
is the arrival of Mashiach. And that the reason why the Chachamim, see, Rabbi Wolfson asks a very amazing question, which is, he says, you know something? Great things, it's true, great things happened on Tuba'ab historically. You know, there was a decree that you could only, within the 12 tribes of Israel, you could only marry someone from your same tribe for a long period of time. And then the, that decree was canceled out on Tuba'av. So anyone within Israel could marry anyone from any tribe. Right? It was also a day where um, they would bring the, the, the wood offering to the, all the wood to the Beis Migdash. So there was a big party that was made for that. Uh, again, I mentioned that the 40 years of dying in the desert ended on, on, on Tuba'av. Also, the women of Jerusalem would uh, all borrow white dresses from each other. And they would dance around the, the Judean hills. And, and the men would come and it would be a big marriage day. In fact, the first king of Israel, Shaul HaMelech, met his wife under those circumstances, on Tuba'av. So it's a big marriage day. And a lot of people get married on Tuba'av. It's a very happy day. But he says, Rabbi Wolfson, you know, these are all really happy things, but is this really worthy of being called one of the happiest days in the entire year? I mean, to put it next to Yom Kippur? I don't know. And so what he says is something very, very amazing. He says there's a concept called Or Choser, which means the reflected light. You see, on a very, very deep level, because God operates outside of time and space, and from God's point of view, the past, the present, and the future have already taken place on some level. Right? So don't ask, how is it possible then that we have free choice? We have free choice. <laughs> we can explain that another, another time, right? How that works exactly. Everyone has free choice. That's a very important foundation of Jewish life and Jewish thought, Torah thought. But God, who is infinite in knowledge, knows. The simple answer is that that is an incredible paradox for us in this dimension. But because God exists dimensions beyond us, where the laws of our logic don't apply, that God, for God, it's not a contradiction at all. For us, it's a contradiction. Maybe an irreconcilable in, in paradox, but not for God. Okay. So we have free choice, but nonetheless, God who exists within time and outside of time has the future before him. So when God makes a promise, on some level, he's already kept that promise. So when God tells us that he's going to bring the redemption of the world, the fixing of the world, that he's going to bring Mashiach, on some level, there's, there's, a, there's a realm where it's already happened. We haven't experienced it yet. And maybe, depending on our free choice, it can manifest itself earlier or later, depending on our merits and our free choice. But nonetheless, God, God keeps his word to the extent that he's already kept his word. Okay, It's a bit of a far-out way of understanding reality, but, it, but it's... it's you know, it's real. So, so that means on some level, on some level, the future redemption has already taken place. And that there's a light that's emanating from the future to us right now. 
It's called the returning light, the or choser, the returning light. And so on some level, we're receiving rays of light from this future redemption, which in some realm has already happened, but we haven't experienced it yet. And that's the open slot in terms of the laying out of the holidays within Pesach. Because we know that Pesach, we say, is a microcosm of the future redemption. In other words, in the way that God took us out of Egypt and saved us from Egyptian slavery, in the future God is going to save us in a similar way with even greater miracles. And so the future redemption is very much linked to the redemption from Egypt. And so it makes sense that within Pesach, which is a microcosm, right, which is celebrating the redemption from Egypt, should include a reference to the future redemption as well, since the future redemption is based on the Egyptian redemption. And so that seventh day, that open slot, says Rabbi Wolfson, is Tuba'ab. And we're already celebrating it right now. Now, let me tell you something else. You see, there's something which in certain quarters is controversial. I don't know that it has to be controversial, but some people feel it's controversial. Which is, in some prayer books, and some synagogues, Orthodox synagogues do this, others don't, when they take out, when, before they put back the Torah, they say a prayer for the state of Israel. And some people include the following line, that God, please bless Israel, and they refer to it as the first flowering of our redemption. Meaning to say that we know that one of the conditions of the Mashiach coming, of the, of the redemption taking place, is the ingathering of the exiles, that everyone's coming back to Israel. And we see it happening with our own eyes that people are coming back. From all four corners of the world, everyone's going back. We see it with our own eyes. And the fact that we have our own country is, is a messianic thing. It's, a, it's, it's happening in front of our eyes. So now you want to hear something very interesting? Now this was put out. This is not just a casual observation. But this thought that I'm about to tell you was issued by the Israeli chief rabbinate early in the history of the Jewish state. That seventh day, which is that open slot, Whatever day Yom Hatzma'ut, which is Israeli Independence Day, whatever the seventh day of Passover is, that's the exact same day as Israel Independence Day. It's not, it's not too this is a different thought. But it, it, it's, it's, it, 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 I'm saying it's in essence, it's the same idea that we've just been saying. It's actually Yom Hatzma'ut. It's Yom Hatzma'ut, yeah. It's Yom Hatzma'ut, yeah. And so here you see that, that if, in fact, the establishment of the state of Israel is, as we say in certain prayers, the first flowering of our redemption, that in other words, it's taking place right now, then it's exactly consistent with Rabbi, what Rabbi Wolfson is saying, that that's the side of Tuba, that we're already experiencing right now the reflection of a future event that hasn't occurred yet, but, but exists in some realm of time and space, and we're receiving the reflected light of it right now. Now, just because it may have gone up in your mind while I was saying this, I want to just resolve a, a question that you may have had, 
which is, in terms of the atbash aspect of it, we seem to, after Rosh Hashanah, have just sort of like skidded off the road of atbash and sort of left it behind. But nonetheless, getting back to the tour, now remember, this is what the essence of this teaching is that Pesach contains as a microcosm all these other holidays and they're all going to appear on the same day. The atbash, the opposite letter aspect, is just a way of remembering the order of the days. In other words, that's, that's a PS. It's a cool PS, but it's just a PS. But in terms of, in terms of um, just seeing it through, again, it's Olive Tuff, the first day of Pesach, Tuff, Tishabav, Bez, the second day of Pesach, Shin, Shvuas, the third day of Pesach, which would be Resh, correlates with Rosh Hashanah, Gimel, Pesach, Resh, Rosh Hashanah. Then here it gets into what we call a, a mnemonic, meaning becomes a little bit more liberal in terms of the actual um, association with the letter in the day. But nonetheless, like I said, that was a PS. The main thing is that the holiday itself falls on the same day. The fourth day of Pesach, which would be Dalid, correlates with the letter Kuf, which is, stands for Kriya Satora, which is Simchas Torah. Okay? And then Hey, um, which is the fifth day, correlates with the letter Tzadi, which stands for Tzom, which means fast. Fast is Yom Kippur. Okay? And then when you get to the sixth, le- the sixth letter, Vav, that cor- correlates with the letter Pei, so we're back on track now because Pei is Purim. That, 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 that actually works exactly again. So, so that's how it works. And then Zion... Right, correlates with um, with Ayin, and that's Yom Atzmaut. Atzmaut begins with the letter Ayin. Um, so Hashem should bless us that really we should be able to see in a revealed way, not just the reflected light, but the direct light, the light itself, and that in all of our lives we should be able to experience that reversal from sadness to openly revealed gladness, and. Um, you know, this is now, just in terms of our, the next few months, we should just know that, as Rabbi Wolfson puts it, right now we're beginning to scale a giant mountain, time-space mountain. Right now we're going to be going from Tuba'av, and that's going to go into the month of Elul, and that's going to go into Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and Simchas Torah, right? So, so this is like the, the beginning of the launch up to just a series of holidays and happy times, and we should all celebrate together.